2: I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
3: Good Tuesday morning, welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford. Today, a deep dive on the consumer and what that means for your money. Target's warning of uh, shrinking profits from that unwanted inventory. We have the impact on Amazon and some other retailers. Plus, can Apple reestablish itself as a safe haven for investors after that Worldwide Developers Conference? We'll talk about where to search for opportunity. And then we're joined by the CEO of MongoDB Live from their Investor Day and the CEO of GitLab. That stock surging after posting results, and that's not the only surprise in store today, D.
4: <laughs> not at all. We have the perfect guest, Carl, to help us break it all down this morning. Jim Kramer joins us on set in San Francisco. I always love it when you come to visit.
5: And I am so honored to be on your show, <laughs> and everybody knows around the office that it's my favorite show. I, I love tech, and there's no better way to find this, and I'm just delighted that you have
4: it. Well, tech loves you. Whenever you come here, you have this amazing lineup. I watched Mad Money last night. The theme there was... Disappointment, and I know your first day yes. in San Francisco was marked by some disappointment. How has your second day gone, and now third?
5: Well, I'll tell you. Uh, David Faber previously was taking credit for a 10:37 turn. What I like to say <laughs> is, is that when it, you're not going to that? Again, are you? When, no, when interest rates go go down, suddenly people like tech. But I had service now last night. Bill McDermott, and he was really saying, "Look, this is nothing like 2008, and it is a crisis of, of opportunity." Uh, and then uh, you may regard this as negative, but I have CrowdStrike, and business is so good. It's just, unfortunately, businesses are good because of the bad guys. They told a very good story. So, so, Deirdre, altogether, I would say that when rates go down, suddenly every story looks good, including Apple.
4: And including some of the less profitable ones, too. I know that you also had Twilio, Jeff Lawson on. And this is a company that's not making money. When you came here, you said, I want to talk to companies right. that are making stuff, doing stuff, making money. They're not yet, but Thank at least you for they that. have a plan to get there, right? So, right. when you see interest rates where they are, um, that has scared everyone off from unprofitable companies, but you think maybe there's opportunity.
5: Well, I mean, Jeff, uh, I find as a man of his word. There have been a couple of setbacks, but he did say, listen, Jim, I promise you profitability in 2023. That's close enough now, Deirdre, that I think people say, you know what? This stock was at 412.
2: Now it's at 100. Let's do some buy. And that's what's happening.
5: John's
4: got a question for you. Jim,
2: uh, great to have you. Big day yesterday. For Apple, right, and for the vision that they're laying out, it's such an interesting company in this inflationary environment where consumers are spending more to get less, but also the high-end consumer still seems pretty strong, and that's Apple's bread and butter. Also interesting, though, that they have this opportunity to expand margins. We saw them come out with the M2 chip in the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro. Um, You know, next they want to expand into wireless as well. Well, What are your thoughts about how that positions that company to maybe have control over its destiny with this vertical integration in this economy?
5: Well, uh, one of the features I love about you and this show is that on the one hand or the other, on the one hand, the (laughs) product, I was very excited about M2. I was very excited about all the things you talked about. Particularly, I also like buy now, pay later, the immersion. But on the other hand, John, you know that people are more concerned about the numbers. And yes, the wealthy people are absolutely spending. But then we have to deal with China. And I think that China is a major hole for them. So do you think that that China can be held within the bounds of that 4 to $8 billion of problems that they talk about?
2: Or do you think it's even worse? I, you know, Jim, I think it's potentially worse worse. I just, I, I wonder what happens in the back half of the year, right? I, I think the consumer is spending now on services because we wanted to go on vacation for so long, right, for a couple of years now. We're yeah. determined to do it now. But I wonder what that does to all kinds of spending in the back half as interest rates are higher. People are perhaps a little more reluctant to tap into their home equity and that has an impact perhaps across the spectrum but regardless of what happens the loyalty that apple's consumer has right and the breadth of product that apple has tends to insulate them a bit
5: you know what that's so true Deirdre. Uh, when i walk around occasionally you see a, a phone that's not an apple out here but uh, I remember once when I went to my college reunion um, now 10 years ago, the only person who didn't have an Apple was Steve Ballmer, which at that point they were doing <laughs> a Microsoft. But I will I tell wonder. you that one of the things that the analysts don't seem to get is that on the one hand, they're all Apple users, but then they talk about, well, these are all incremental. But then when they're on your Apple, you're very excited. Buy now, pay later. Right now I have a relationship where I transfer money, and it's backed up with American Express, but buy now, pay later for younger people. It's really caught fire. Uh, gaming. They they could make gaming. I remember Intel tried to make gaming chips that were fast enough. Uh, they mostly default to NVIDIA and to AMD. So anything that Apple does that's incremental, that makes their universe better, including, by the way, the webcam,
4: I get excited the about webcam, it. The webcam, do you like that one that went on top of your computer?
5: Well, I I, I use a Logitech, but <laughs> yes. I'm, when I'm more organized and my webcam goes down to Delray, can you imagine I'm now old enough that I'm a snowbird. I mean, what a (laughs) terrible thing! My wife said, "What are you doing? I'm going to Florida." You got to come to NASA. I'm not that old.
4: But okay, when you talk about incremental, Jim, there were some people that were a little disappointed because everything we did get felt incremental. What comes after the smartphone? Many people say it's this AR VR headset. No one was expecting to get the actual hardware yesterday. But did they tell us enough about their ambitions? in that space well, where Meta and Google and others are, are experimenting in public and putting products out there that people What a great use.
5: point. And the answer is no, but aren't they show, me- show people? I mean, to some degree, I didn't know buy now, pay later. Now, if they suddenly do AR, VR, I will be excited about it. Uh, they are technologists with an entertainment aspect, and they get me excited. Uh, and Maybe they don't get me excited for the thing I expected. In the same way, and, uh, and Carl, i got to bring you in. Remember when Apple Plus started and we said, oh, they don't know how to do it. <laughs> I now presume that Apple Plus is my default. That's where I go. Uh-
3: that was one of the surprises, Jim, at least from some of the commentary this morning that they didn't mention, say, winning Best Picture for Coda uh, yesterday. But I do wonder, you know, we had Rod Hall from Goldman, longtime neutral on Apple, on the show about an hour ago. And it's been interesting. He thought car play was actually pretty intriguing. If that is, in fact, the expansion, if, if that's how you introduce some uh, some new mobility issues. I see Uber Freight and Waymo on the tape right now, Jim. I wonder if maybe mo- mobility becomes a has some second leg is a story later this year.
5: Well, the total adjustable market there is the biggest. And I, I found a number of analysts were excited about CarPlay. I tended to overlook that. So then you start saying, well, why did you overlook it? Well, I'm not the driver in my family. Uh, I also know that I find that I always think I have everything, everything I need in my car. I have a Maverick, which is this great mini truck. And Deirdre, I kind of feel it has everything. Why do I need more? But one of the things that Apple's so great at is the answer is you don't, you don't think you need more. But we have more, and then they give you you can't what live you without it. Want. Right? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I've got to tell you, when I I go with young people, I've got two young kids, and they're always telling me, "Dad, if you press that." You can do something that I've never, you know, it's like to me, this is a, transporting to Mars. They're saying, no, dad, if you you know press this button and you won't believe what can happen. I, and that for older people is a big deal.
4: Does it matter, though, when we talk about CarPlay that Tesla doesn't have the Apple Play system right. and that's, you know, the Wise now the number two selling well, vehicle well, here in California?
5: I remember when Harmon Kardon was bought by Samsung and it got very exciting to see them. Uh Everyone always has something new and different. Uh, I want good sound. I'll tell you what's going to happen. This is what's most important. When I get the quality sound that I would get from a Harman Harman Kardon on this phone, then I know I'll be really happy because that's the one thing I hope Tim Cook solves. Hmm. It sounds tinny. In your ear it sounds great, but it sounds very tinny when we play it out loud.
2: Jim, got to give a deep tease to later in the show. We've got David Acheria from MongoDB, we've got Sid Sabrandi from GitLab coming up. Both of these companies kind of highly levered to um, not just the cloud, I mean, what is the cloud anymore, but this real digital transformation story, multi-cloud, you know, uh, new types of databases, both had earnings, GitLab most recently, both have popped majorly on the backs of those, and they're the sorts of companies that people were running away from a few weeks ago. So your thoughts on net revenue retention, and the moat that some of these smaller you know, best of breed, as they're called, technology companies have that maybe have gotten tossed out with the bathwater in this market at least well, a few weeks ago.
5: I am so glad you asked me about it. First of all, Dev is terrific for MongoDB, but I had given up on MongoDB. Why? Because it was enterprise software that seemed to do what everybody else does, And then they tell their story, like ServiceNow told the story on last night. And people say, wait a second, this stock's down 43%. Business is really good. uh, They are doing a lot of things. When I see that, John, I say to myself, you know what? If interest rates go down, why shouldn't I buy MongoDB? It's a darn good story. And that's where I think people are reassessing what they've thrown away. And don't forget, there are hedge funds that have blown up that are now out of the picture. So there's not as much resistance when it comes to selling. So, John, I think the MongoDB is fascinating. I just presumed it was going to be a just a nothing, uh, nothing of interest. And then, it, of course, it surprises you and
4: you make some dollars. Well, it does feel like enterprise software is the That's first right. ones that are unprofitable that get picked up. But let's say on the other side of the spectrum, I know you have Uber and Lyft coming up this week. These are unprofitable companies that are not an enterprise software that... They're tough, right? They go by adjusted EBITDA, which I know you're not a huge fan of. And you
5: were very kind to say, yes, I like companies that make stuff and do things that are valued not that expensively that return capital. And uh, Uber and Lyft, even after these declines, do not fit that depiction. So it is problematic for me to recommend those stocks. Particularly Lyft, because at least Uber's got diversification into food. Now, I tell you, Lyft will say, listen, we're deeply, we're, we're uh, laser focused on transport. I don't know if it's good to be laser focused on transport.
4: Right, and they have a much smaller footprint, right? They're only in much. North America. And it's interesting to look at the valuations. They're around the same point when they're right. very different propositions. Very different.
5: And look, one of the things people have to recognize is
4: not everything right. works. What about the free cash flow? Dara Khosra Shahi says he wants to get to free cash flow well, positive. This
5: look, year. I'm still a believer a in Dara. I think that Dara can do it, and I've talked with them about some of the things they've done. By the way, they've got a liquor distribution system, they've got a competitor to DoorDash, and they've got Dara. I mean, one of the things we forget is that there's some proven winners. People have been able to pull things out. So, yes, Uber was too high. The question is now, did we... When we're in our Uber, do we uh, pick up the phone and say sell Uber? I don't think so.
4: Well, you like an operator, though. Dara didn't found this company, whereas John Zimmer did.
5: That's very true. But uh, but John Zimmer, by his own, he'll talk about Chapter 3 today when I'm on today. But I want to know <laughs> about how we get to Chapter 1, which is making
4: money. Fair, fair. You've got Zimmer tonight. Who else do you have?
5: Well, we have people in terms of people making money. We have Hock Tan yes. from Broadcom. Oh, my. Nikesh Arora, who turned around a kind of also ran a cybersecurity company. And then we've got a guy a Amin. Now, tiring is what people don't know about him is, people buy lipstick even if That's we right. have a recession. ELF has probably done the best of any cosmetics company. And I say that knowing that Fabrizio Fraser from L mm-hmm. you know, who is just so good. Uh, you know, don't forget that the king is Estee Lauder, but <laughs> they, they have well, not done as well right. as Mr. Amin.
4: Well, we are looking forward to you've got a killer lineup for the rest of the week as well, Jim. Well, it's
5: a pleasure. You know what, a killer lineup is your show. I completely. <laughs> when you guys yeah, change the Tech Check. John comes in and he does express one or the other. Obviously, Carl's my partner and you, you come in. I, I have to listen. The reason I have to listen is because the same reason I'm out here. At, these are the companies that matter.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, I want to ask you at the end of the week what your view is after spending a whole week here.
5: Well, so I, I'm I hope I'm not as disappointed that. as when I ride, but I appreciate the time on too. your show. Thank you.
2: <laughs> John. Hey, Jim, you, you know why lipstick sales stay strong when the economy goes down? Because all the analysts have to put lipstick on the pigs, right? I think that's why.
5: I mentioned Uh-oh. that at the 9 o'clock. I'm not Did putting you? lipstick on a pig Uh-oh. like Kohl's, but yes. I'm
2: late to that joke then.
5: <laughs> no, it. it's always, it's never too late for that joke. It works. Jim. Thank thanks. you, guys. Yeah. Thank you very much.
2: We got to turn now to Shopify, which is hosting its annual meeting this morning. Shareholders voting to give CEO Toby Lutke more power through a founder share, which means he's going to hold 40% of the company's voting power. That's as long as Lutke owns at least 1.1% of shares Shareholders also approving a 10-for-1 stock split. Uh, the stock was a major pandemic winner, but has fallen about 80% from its 52-week high. Carl, uh, despite what the stock has done, still true that Shopify has been visionary in e-commerce. Uh, its run-up it, uh, operationally has been significant, and this perhaps gives them a little bit more headway to do what they want in logistics as others are trying to scale back. Uh, indeed. And
3: if we're looking at uh, inventory gluts here in a number of categories in the first half of the year, uh, D, I mean, John just mentioned home equity. There's a report out today that there's $11 trillion in untapped home equity at about $207,000 per borrower. So we can talk a lot about dwindling savings rates, but uh, there's a good chance that the consumer will have access to funds in the back half of the year. And it probably for goods that are at lower prices.
4: Right, could bode well. What I'm most interested in the stock split is actually that founder's share, guys, which uh, granted the CEO Tobias Tobias Luke Luke, special voting rights. Um, It's kind of rare to see this after a company has gone public many years ago. So even if his ownership of actual shares in the company decreases, his voting power um, will still remain sort of dominant. And I wonder, John, if that encourages some other companies, especially as the market goes through this re-rating to follow similar moves. Interesting that it passed, even though some of the, um, some of the prominent advisory firms recommended against it.
2: Well, yeah, don't try this at home, right? I mean, not everybody is Shopify. Not everybody is Toby luka I mean, again, I, I think the yeah. track record of Shopify going up against Amazon and others. Some people try to tell me they're not up against Amazon. Yes, they are. Uh, and creating this new option for small and medium business to get online and control their own destiny, whether they want to sell on Amazon or through Google or through Facebook, etc. That's been a real winner. And I think there's a real question. Can they take that to yet another level? And in order to do that, Toby would argue, uh, you need to give him the reins, keep him in the driver's seat. and apparently Yeah, enough- but why not huh?
4: let the markets decide, right? Why does he need that? <laughs>
2: Well, I think it's fair to say, if you look at Apple and the doubts around the iPhone early on, boy, they should have licensed iOS to others. They shouldn't do vertical integration. Retail is a boondoggle. The markets don't know everything.
4: Fair. (laughs) Long-term plans.
3: Meanwhile, guys, MongoDB, we mentioned, also hosting its Investor Day today. And that's where we find our Frank Holland, who joins us with a special guest. Hey, Frank.
6: Hey there, Carl. Right now I'm joined by Dave Idicharia, the CEO of MongoDB. Joining us today on the day of your worldwide user conference, MongoDB World, packed house here in New York City. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so earlier today you had some product announcements. You also gave the keynote address to this crowd. Can you share with us the message that you wanted to send to developers and also investors who are here today as well?
7: I think the main point of this conference is to show how far we've come as a company, what we've basically shown is that a lot of people who didn't, you know, really think that we could uh, fundamentally change how data is managed have seen how quickly we've grown. We now have 35,000 customers. We've grown very quickly. We delivered stellar Q1 results, and this conference, and you yourself commented that, you know, the attendance was huge. We I think we have about 3,300 people here in New York. And um, we've shown that what we really are doing is deploying a developer data platform. And that platform is really enabling developers to have all the capabilities to build today's modern applications and really set them up to enable them to move fast and innovate quickly. Your share is up about 7%
6: today, up double digits since your earnings just about a week ago. We're gonna show a chart just in a second. During those earnings, you actually raised your guidance, but at the same time, you cited some macroeconomic headwinds. You heard a lot of tech companies talk about headwinds, whether it be the strengthening dollar, rising rates, the war in Ukraine.
7: Is there one of those headwinds that you see as the biggest issue in the second half of the year? Well, what we said at the conference was that our rate of growth was modestly slowing down in Europe, typically at the low end. So at the self-serve business and our small and medium-sized business. And then in May, we saw a little bit of that show up in the self-serve business, which is why we gave the guidance we did. In terms of reasons, it's hard for us to really discern what exactly is the, the driving those headwinds, but it was broad-based in Europe. We saw it in all sectors, from Northern Europe to Southern Europe to Eastern Europe to even the Scandinavian markets. It was just broad-based. So that tells us it's a macro uh, issue. And what it really says is that we're seeing second-order effects of our customers. I mean, people don't shut off databases, but what we're seeing is second-order effects of their businesses potentially seeing a little bit of a slowdown. But it's a slowdown in rate of growth, not in absolute terms.
2: Huh. Uh, Dave, it's John Fort. Great to have you back on Tech Check. Uh, Want to ask kind of a two-sided question here. Uh, Atlas grew 82% year over year, which is significant you know, in the latest quarter that you reported, but at the same time, you're talking about these second order effects from customers, so what are you doing on costs. Do you lean into uh, the business that's still working and growing at that rate? Are you hiring to continue to fuel that? Or are you being uh, more cautious as you see these second-order effects start to play out and perhaps not certain how they're going to continue to for the rest of the year?
7: Thanks, John. Um, What I'd say is that we're really focused on the fundamentals of this, of our business, and our fundamentals are strong. We think the secular tailwinds for our business in terms of how software is transforming every industry, how people are viewing MongoDB as the fastest way to innovate, how more and more developers are grabbing to our platform is really, really strong. So we're continuing to invest in the business. Uh, obviously, we look at those investments and make sure we're getting high rates of return, and we're very pleased with our results, so much so in Q1, we delivered not only non-GAAP operating margin profitable, but we also cash flow positive. So we've shown a lot of fiscal discipline, a lot of operating leverage while we're delivering high rates of growth. And so we feel good about our business and we're continuing to invest in the business primarily both in R&D as well as in sales and marketing.
6: You know, following up on John's question about the growth of Atlas, which as he mentioned, over 80%, Part of this growth has also been your partnerships with hyperscalers like AWS and Google Cloud. Um, do you see those partnerships continuing long-term or do you see them encroaching in, in your business somewhat or are you possibly encroaching in some of their business?
7: Well, what I'll tell you is when we launched Atlas um, essentially six years ago in 2016, a lot of people thought we were crazy to try and partner and compete with the cloud providers because no one had been able to successfully do that in our space. Well, as you said, Atlas is the fastest growing piece of our business, is where the majority of our customers are using us. And, uh, and frankly, it's really been an inflection point for the, for the company. Uh, we have great relationship with the cloud providers, um, and uh, so much so that we're building deep technical integrations with all three of them, as well as doing joint marketing and sales with them. And the reason I think that they're coming to us is that we drive so much business for them. MongoDB is so popular. We're the world's most popular modern data platform today, and because customers run their workloads on their clouds, they see other business, so they see a real win-win relationship with us, which is why they're all here at our conference this week. We had a great partner event last night, and there's so much activity going on in the field around the world with each of those three cloud providers.
2: Uh, Dave, strategic question for you, Uh sort of off of what you were just saying. To what degree is the multi-cloud trend, customers not wanting to go all in on just AWS or just Azure, just Google, et cetera, to what extent does that benefit you and how important is it for you to be kind of the the partner of choice that allows them to work across those platforms? Because not only MongoDB, but also IBM with Red Hat, others are trying to make that uh, first stop multi-cloud case.
7: I think our multi-cloud story has been a key part of a value proposition. Now, most customers won't start multi-cloud, but what they will do is they like the optionality that they can always go multi-cloud when they want to, and they also like the option of starting on-premise and moving the cloud or in some cases move the cloud back to on-premise. So what we enable is customers to run MongoDB anywhere and that optionality run anywhere is very, very powerful. Now, as you can imagine, smaller customers will typically run on one cloud, but we have many large customers now who are running workloads on different clouds. And the benefit of, of building on top of MongoDB is you don't have to rewrite the application to move from one cloud to another. So that really gives customers confidence. It's also, frankly, the broadest solution available, so, people, so you're seeing more and more developers build applications on MongoDB, and the fact that they can run on premise, run the cloud, run multi-cloud, and also, we also have a bunch of other partnerships with people like Alibaba and Tencent, and also um, uh, European cloud providers, as data sovereignty becomes more and more an, if, an issue, that uh, they're choosing to run on MongoDB with the optionality to run their workloads anywhere.
6: All right, we're gonna have to leave the conversation there. Thank you for joining us from MongoDB World, Dev Itacheria,
3: Dave Itacheria, excuse me, from MongoDB World, Carl. Back over to you. All right, Frank, thanks so much to you. That's our Frank Holland. Still to come this hour. Texas is probing Twitter. Another change in the C-suite of Peloton and a lot more from WWDC. TechCheck is just getting started. As Elon Musk continues to voice concerns over Twitter's transparency regarding bots on the platform, the Texas AG launching a probe over that issue. Our Julia Borston's with us and has more on the latest in this saga. Hi, Julia.
9: On uh, such a saga, Carl, now the Texas Attorney General is getting involved in Musk's takeover of Twitter and he's taking Elon Musk's side, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton announcing yesterday that his office is opening an investigation into the bot accounts on Twitter. He's demanding details on 23 items, including daily, monthly, and monetizable active users, as well as inauthentic account numbers. He says, quote, it matters not only for regular Twitter users, but also Texas businesses and advertisers who use Twitter for their livelihoods. If Twitter is misrepresenting how many accounts are fake to drive up their revenue, I have a duty to protect Texans. Now, Musk does, of course, have ties to Texas. He moved Tesla to Austin from Palo Alto and he opened a new Tesla factory in the state this year, this after moving his residence to Texas back in 2020. Truist analyst Yusuf Squally recommending that investors stay on the sidelines of Twitter, is telling us, quote, I think this is the Texas AG clearly siding with Musk and giving him more ammunitions publicly to try to renege on the deal. I don't believe it'll have much of an impact on whether the deal goes through or not. I suspect the valuation ends up getting revised lower and a deal goes through or it ends up in a messy, protracted court battle. Jeffrey's analyst Brent Thill telling us, quote, It is very clear Musk is trying to negotiate a lower price, despite saying his acquisition motive is not financially driven. This all comes after yesterday Twitter responded to Musk's criticism and threat to terminate the deal, Twitter saying the company intends to close the transaction and to enforce the merger agreement at the agreed price and terms. And guys, of course, remember that that price is $54.20, a lot higher than where the stock is trading right now. The Texas AG will join Squawk on the street tomorrow, so you do not want to miss that interview. D That'll be a good one, Julia. Uh, one of the
4: many twists in the saga, thank you very much. After the break, more takeaways from Apple's WWDC event, plus what new laws in Europe may mean for future iPhone designs. Don't go away.
8: Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Rider's Block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at Canva.com. Designed for work. Canva.
6: With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them.
0: Good morning, I'm Contessa Brewer. Here's your CNBC News update this hour. Target says its short-term profits will suffer as it moves to get rid of excess inventory by cutting prices on unpopular items. CEO Brian Cornell tells CNBC the retail chain wants to act quickly to make room for products its customers do want, like groceries and back-to-school supplies. SpaceX's Starlink satellite internet business will not go public anytime soon in an audio recording obtained by cnbc elon musk told spacex employees he doesn't know when there will be an ipo but just quote just guessing three or four years from now well three years ago musk told employees it would probably make sense to take starlink public as soon as this year you can go to cnbc.com for more on starlink's shifting timeline and with a five cent jump Since yesterday, we have another record high for gasoline. AAA says the national average for a gallon of regular is now $4.91. In California, that average is even higher, $6.37. Look at that. Price is going even higher. It hurts
3: when you fill up, Carl. Uh, And could get worse, Uh, Contessa. Thank you, Contessa Brewer. Let's turn back to Apple this morning. The company made a number of announcements yesterday at that worldwide developers conference, including some new software updates, buy now, pay later service. And of course, the new M2 chip here to discuss the Verge editor in chief, Neelay Patel, who attended the event. Neelay, it's great to have you. It sure sounds like M2 stole a lot of thunder. Is that how it felt there?
1: Uh, yes and no. I mean, the the best selling laptop in the world is the MacBook Air. The MacBook Air is a product uh, certainly drew most of the attention yesterday. The chip inside is great. it's a, you know, it's an extension of Apple's a fifteen chip. It's a lot of the same architecture. Apple's lead over in the industry is so vast at this point that it's almost not worth remarking on anymore. They're so <laughs> far ahead of Intel and AMD that their performance per watt, their battery life is just it's just so superior that, you know, the thing that most of us were talking about at the event yesterday was the MacBook Air is no longer a wedge shape. You know, It's an iconic right. shape, and now it's more of a traditional laptop shape. Apple's still going to sell a ton of them. At this point, I think that the thing that we're all looking at for their chips is they've got to compete on the high end. They haven't released that Mac Pro based on the M-Series architecture. And then how are they going to use these chips for you know their forthcoming next generation products, like a headset, like a car, things like that?
3: Right. Although we're talking about the performance of hardware now. What I've read a lot this morning is the second order effects uh, of a faster pace of software innovation that can be applied to that hardware because of the chip. And we got to some of that yesterday, too, right?
1: Yeah, we really saw it. You know, Apple traditionally has organized this keynote by its product lines, the Mac, the iPad, the iPhone. But if you actually take a step back, everything they announced is coming to every product so the new ipad window management system is coming to the mac they announced a weather app as though it was not 2022. the weather app is coming to the ipad along with the weather api for other app developers to use so really everything they're announcing is coming to all of their platforms kind of equally there's a lot of blurriness now between the top end of the ipad line and its window management features they said they were adding desktop class apis there's a lot of blurriness between that ipad and the bottom end of the mac that blurriness continues to get uh, wider and wider, and every time we ask them about it, they just say, well, people buy a lot of iPads. They're, they're <laughs> happy with it. But I think fundamentally, their products are getting more seamlessly integrated. There's things that they're doing that are really fascinating to see if the industry goes along with them. They announced a version of CarPlay that takes over every screen in your car. I'm not sure any car maker or any automaker CEO that I've ever talked to is willing to give up all of the real estate in their car to Apple, but they seem very confident that they can push this out.
2: Yeah, I also don't see them doing a lot of super creative stuff with the odometer, though, Neil. So maybe their uh, feelings about that have changed. Two things, bringing it back to dollars and cents on Apple, that jumped out at me from the announcements yesterday. One, the iPhone SE is now a somewhat expensive but multifunction webcam, which I think is interesting, right? How many people are going to buy it for a webcam that they can then take off and do other stuff with? And then the MacBook Air now is tiered, so the M2 MacBook Air starts at what around twelve hundred bucks, but they're keeping the M1 at around a thousand. So that's an interesting way to deal with inflation. And you know, we, we talk about a low-end Apple laptop, but that's still a pretty high-end consumer laptop by overall Windows standards.
1: That's right. And, you know, we actually have seen some discounts on that M1 MacBook Air over time. So it, the real prices consumer payers are dipping lower. I think there's a lot of supply chain in here that, you know, Apple is very good at it, but they never talk about it. That M1 Air, they've been shipping a lot of them. There's M1 chips and a lot of their other products. I think they have scale there. They have supply there. They can keep it at that low price. They really don't like dipping below $1,000 on a laptops for MSRP, but they can compete kind of on the lower end. The M2, they announced it in the air in a new MacBook Pro. It's not going to come out for a while. I think they have some supply chain issues there. So I think having the M1 remain in the lineup and not immediately go away lets them even out that ramp up that maybe in other years we wouldn't have seen.
4: Neil, I brought this up with Jim at the start of the show, but some are focused on what Apple didn't provide an update on. And I wonder if there's any disappointment on your side, especially when it comes to Not necessarily the headset, but what Apple is going to do in AR and VR. Can we be confident that Apple is going to be a winner in this next phase of technology?
1: Uh, Picking, betting on who the winner will be in the next generation of technology is very hard. I think Apple is usually a pretty good bet. Uh, We saw a lot of the building blocks of what app developers and Apple's own developers will need to build AR features in the future. So Apple announced uh, live uh, live text recognition and video. You can pause the video and immediately see the computer can read what the text on the screen is. That's something you absolutely need in an augmented reality environment where you're ingesting tons of video and trying to recognize what's in front of you. They announced a bunch of Siri integration features, additional voice controls. So these are the building blocks that developers will need to build AR applications. I think Apple, what they like to do is announce complete products. That's in contrast to virtually every other uh, tech maker that we can think of, including Meta. Where, you know The Quest 2 is a great product, but they announced a very incomplete version of it. They've built it in public to where it is now. Apple's going to announce a finished product with application ecosystem ready to go. So they're providing the building blocks for those developers. I'm sure they'll, you know, the a bunch of them, they'll have some apps ready to go. But I don't think they're going to announce it for another year or so until it is
10: ready.
3: Yeah, we don't get a lot of uh, teaser trailers from Apple. They usually wait till the whole movie uh, is ready to go. Finally, on the the topic of things that did not get mentioned as much, more privacy initiatives, although I see Cook today uh, talking about being worried about the loss of privacy at uh, Time 100. I wonder, where do you think that's headed?
1: You know, I I think Tim Cook right now is facing a kind of a barrage of legislation. And it's funny that there isn't actually a a privacy bill in the mix. For all the things, Apple could probably trade their way out of some of this anti scrust scrutiny if they would get behind major privacy legislation in a big way. So I think there's a little bit of horse trading and lobbying going on from, from Cook there. On the other hand, right? they announced effectively a buy-now-pay-later service. They did the cookie apocalypse. They took out uh, targeted advertising across a number of other uh, companies, and now they're building, targeting advertising products on, the, on their own end. So I think the increasing sort of financialization and advertising business of Apple is getting stronger. But at the same time, I think they, they want to make sure that they're firmly in control of it, and they can trade on that consumer trust they've built up over years to have that market exist in a way that they're comfortable with. I don't know that anybody on the outside of that agreement thinks that's a fair trade, but that's my guess.
3: Yeah. Uh, there's, there's, there's definitely wide space to fill in on, on buy now, pay later, too, uh, who they're going to partner with, mm-hmm. and, and so forth. But we got a lot. We, we learned a lot yesterday, Neelay, that's for sure. Thanks so much, Nile Patel. Yeah. Thanks, all.
4: And still to come, yet another leadership change at Peloton. The details on the other side of this break. TechCheck is back in two. now for a gut check on Peloton. The company is shaking up its C-suite again just months after the departure of founder and former CEO John Foley. This time, CFO Jill Woodworth is on the way out, replacing her. Amazon Web Services VP of Finance Liz Coddington, the former Walmart.com and Netflix executive looking to right the ship with shares suffering heavy losses, as you probably know, in the post-pandemic landscape. Peloton recently taking on $750 million worth of debt to fund operations it's also facing pressure from activist investor Blackwell's Capital, which is urging the company to consider a sale as recently as April, John.
2: Yep. Now, after the break, we're going to talk opportunities in software with the CEO of GitLab. That is getting a huge pop after reporting results. You see it up more than 20 percent so far today. Stay with us. Welcome back. Turning now to GitLab. You heard us just talking to David Acheria about multi-cloud. We've talked about DevOps on this show. Bank of America sees value in GitLab, calling the stock a category leader in enterprise software, naming it their top pick in the space. The company delivering on that call this morning. Shares are surging after beating the street in Q1. Guidance coming in above the street's expectations. Joining us now for a closer look at the quarter, GitLab CEO Sid Cibrandi. Uh, Sid, Great to have you. Now, again, we were just talking with uh, the CEO of MongoDB about some of the trends driving this and multi-cloud has got to be one, right, as you uh, at GitLab help the engineers within companies to efficiently work across different platforms. How much is that in particular driving the business and how much room is there for sort of headcount growth within your existing customer base?
11: Yeah, thanks for that. Totally agree. What we're seeing is that customers they want to have the same development practices the same security the same operational practices they want to integrate that across the company and that's what GitLab helps them do we're independent of any cloud provider and we help them to be compliant across clouds we got a lot of space to grow if you look at the market it's a 40 billion dollar market and we believe we have the leading product there
2: So you saw good momentum in deals that were a half a million dollars, deals that were a million dollars as well. But how much is the macro environment going to affect that, even by geographies?
11: Yeah, we saw strong momentum. We saw the customers of more than 100,000 ARR. They were up 68% from Q1 of fiscal, uh, from last fiscal year. So great momentum we are very strong in the enterprise enterprise and public sector is 70% of our revenue and 93% of large enterprises plan to spend more on IT in the coming year
4: hey said it's, it, it's your job um, i noticed in your results that stock based compensation that expense increased by nearly fivefold and i'm wondering what your hiring plans are this year if they changed it all in Really, if you could talk a little bit about your ability to hire and retain talent in the current environment, especially with your shares down so much from their peak.
11: Yeah, thanks for that. We're very happy with our ability to hire. We are very happy with the, the, the people we were able to hire in the last quarter. We do have almost 200 positions open, so we continue to hire. We've not wavered from our plan. We believe we're very early in a really big market. So we are growing fast, but we're growing responsibly.
3: Hey, Sid, I know you argue that we're in a period where uh, companies are having to reinvent and that macro conditions really don't have that much of an impact on the trajectory of sales, but we've seen that corporate budgets uh, do respond to shocks. And if we get one, whether it's based here in North America or around the world, I mean, what is the bar right now for budgets to really start to decide, no, we're gonna pass on that project this year?
11: The projects that are gonna stay in the budget are the ones that are mission critical and the ones that are gonna save companies money. And we believe we're both. It's mission critical to move to the cloud. At the same time, we can save companies money by consolidating their tool spend with one vendor, saving on the integration cost, not having to make the digital duct tape, and being able to deliver more software innovation with the same number of people.
2: Sid, um- I've just got a feeling that in the next two to three years, there's going to be some kind of roll-up play in DevOps, in multi-cloud, in these kind of -of best-of-breed software tools that um, make enterprises more efficient, either driven by private equity or driven by some of the hyperscalers who are trying to take out competition. What is your plan, uh, if you have one, for that eventual environment? Are you planning to be an acquirer or...
11: What's really important is that the platform is fully integrated. GitLab is one interface, one data store, one comprehensive way to view your company. And you got to build that from the ground up. When we do an acquisition, we acquire the company, shut down the product, rebuild it within GitLab. and You can't replicate that by acquiring 10 different point solutions and then calling it a platform. A true platform has one data store, has one dashboard into your whole company. And we're leading there and we'll continue to innovate. We ship hundreds of improvements in GitLab every quarter.
2: Okay. Well, we will continue to track your progress. Big bounce again, more than 22% so far after earning Sid Sabrandi from GitLab. Thank you. Thanks so much. Throughout the month of June, we are celebrating Pride Month.
3: Here's New York Times columnist and CNBC contributor Jim Stewart.
10: When I was coming of age, The conventional wisdom was that half, if not more, of all career fields were closed off to someone who was known to be gay. And I always took the assumption that, you know, well, that may be true, but I'm not gonna limit myself. I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. Be ambitious, think big, do not assume that you are going to be cut off from the opportunity simply because you are part of a sexual minority.
3: Getting a news alert this morning on PayPal. Kate Rooney's got that for us. Hi, Kate.
12: Hey, Carl. PayPal will now let users move cryptocurrencies on and off of that platform. It's been a long-awaited feature for the company in a statement. PayPal saying it's going to support the native transfer of cryptocurrencies between PayPal and other wallets and exchanges. And it says here that this is the most requested feature since they rolled out cryptocurrency trading back in 2020. The rollout starts today. It's going to be available across the US in a couple weeks here. Like I mentioned, started offering crypto a couple years ago. This is key, though. You really couldn't move any of your funds on or off of PayPal or Venmo into other uh, wallets, as they call them, uh, which exist at Coinbase. You got MetaMask and others. Um, And this has been kind of controversial. It sparked the term, not your keys, not your wallet. On Twitter, people have been asking for this. Other fintechs have also moved in this direction lately. We had Robinhood not long ago. Coinbase has this as well. And uh, PayPal appears to be catching up here. Not a first mover by any means, but getting further into cryptocurrencies as we've got Bitcoin below 30K this morning. Back to you. You answered
4: my question, Kate. I was wondering if uh, Robinhood and Coinbase already had this capability. Thank you, Kate Rooney. We also want to remind you to follow and subscribe to our podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. TechCheck is back in just a moment.
3: Welcome back. One more thing before we go. And that's Uber and Waymo teaming up on autonomous trucking. Our Phil LaBeau sat down with both companies and has some exclusive details. I've already read this morning, uh, Phil, this could be a game changer.
10: It could be, Carl, and it's just beginning. It's worth billions of miles. They're not saying exactly how much, but here's the agreement between Waymo, the Alphabet subsidiary, and Uber Freight. They will be teaming up with first runs between Dallas and Houston. Yes, there will be a safety driver, at least initially, but as they expand in the southwestern U.S., they expect that driver to eventually come out of the cab, with the goal being nationwide expansion of autonomous shipping.
3: So even though we're watching on Dallas to Houston, on I-45, we plan to fast follow uh, and start to scale through Texas, west towards LA, east towards Atlanta, um, and really start to build out this network where every single leg adds a lot of value to uh, our customers um, and those of our partners.
1: We'll
4: be able to optimize the network as a whole much more efficiently. So we think this
10: will add a lot to the underlying capacity shortage that the industry is experiencing today. As you take a look at shares of Uber, we pointed out that this is an agreement worth billions of miles. Exactly how many we don't know. But also, as you take a look at shares of uh, Google or Alphabet, the parent of Waymo, keep in mind that Waymo is moving very quickly, developing level four autonomous vehicle technology. Guys, they believe that the shipping brokerage market underutilized and could be much more efficiently utilized if there's autonomous autonomous shipping uh, that's part of the uh, opportunities for shipping goods.
4: Phil, I couldn't help but chuckle a little bit when I heard about this partnership. It wasn't that long ago that here in San Francisco, I was at the courthouse covering that very bitter battle between (laughs) Uber and Waymo to see them be partners. Now, I wonder, does this clear the way for another partnership, perhaps on the consumer side, which would be a huge deal?
10: Possibly. I think for now they're, they're going to say we're going to strictly focus on this area uh, and whether or not we see Uber on the consumer side and Waymo. A lot of things, a lot of hurdles need to be cleared before we could see that possibly happening.
3: Uh, fascinating development here, uh, Phil. We're going to watch to see how it develops and certainly the types of carriers that they get involved with to start mm-hmm. and move along. But that's uh, that's big news. Phil LeBeau joining us on that uh, Waymo and Uber Freight uh, partnership. Meantime, been around the block a couple times this morning, but for now, pretty close to the flat line. Dow's down about 18. Let's get to the judge and the half.
2: You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.
4: This podcast is supported by FedEx.